Good morning. Good morning. Good? Yeah, it's great to be back with you guys again. I didn't expect last time I was here that I would be back so soon, but uh, it's always a great thing to be here this morning. We've had a great week uh, on Central Campus. We've had our uh, Spring Hill Camp all week. Some of you participated in that with us, but that meant for Iona and I that we had a house full of four high school, college girls uh, for the entire week. And even though we raised three girls, that is a little bit of getting used to again uh, once you've been away from it for a few years. But uh, today we were supposed to be up on North Campus at 9 teaching our uh, Bible study methods class. And yet at the same time, those girls had to all pack and get ready and leave. And so we were just torn. And I was coming here as well. And so how were you going to do all this? So we finally decided to send Ione up to North Campus by herself and she could teach that class, and then I waited around for the girls to finally wake up, get dressed, get their suitcases loaded, haul all that junk out the front door, and, uh, but still, I loved being with them. It was great. It was a lot of fun, um, but it's been a stretching day, and it didn't help that about 3 this morning, 3 a.m., we heard the shower door open and slam, and we heard water running, and one of the girls just decided this would be a perfect time to take a shower, which uh, we, we would heartily disagree with her. But we didn't say anything. She had a good time, I hope, uh, getting everything done. But uh, yeah, it, it was quite a week. So if I fall asleep in the middle of this sermon, you can join me. But we're in Habakkuk. Uh, Lisa Misnick and I were kind of talking about how do you pronounce this strange prophet, this eighth prophet of the minor ones. Um, and it really doesn't matter. One of the things that they taught us in uh, seminary was that anytime we're dealing with titles and proper nouns uh, in the ancient languages, there's really no one who can correct you on those because there's no one alive anymore that remembers how to pronounce them. But we're going to do our best today with Habakkuk. So uh, if you want to open your Bibles to chapter 1 on that, if you're following along, you may do so. Let's have a word of prayer and then we'll get into God's word. In fact, if you don't mind, if you will join me in the declaration that we like to do, uh, that would be great. So stand up, and you can just repeat after me. By the power and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command, we do not suggest, but we command that any and all evil get out of here. From my mind, is a quiet place. It's a holy place where only Jesus and I can talk. And my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Father, we just praise you for the opportunity to be together this morning to open your word, to study it, to understand it. Father, may you for just this time together this morning take us back all those years, some 2,600 years to when Habakkuk Pen these words, Father, because they have application to us today. They're still relevant because it is your word. I pray, Father, that you would take all the distractions, the thoughts, the uh, worries that we have from everyday life, and for the time that we're here together, I pray, Father, you would dismiss them so we can have full focus on what you want to say to us today. Father, may I be clear. May I be yielded to you so that you may use me as an empty vessel to speak to your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Take a seat. So, Habakkuk. 
as I said, this is uh, one of the minor prophets. If you're not familiar with Habakkuk, you would have to kind of search through the end of the Old Testament. We have four major prophets, right? Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Daniel. And then we have 12 minor prophets, and this is the eighth minor prophet. Not that that's important to remember. I just want to say, though, if you're wondering what's the difference between a major prophet and a minor prophet, it's just how big the books are, right? Major prophets have thick books. Minor prophets have thin books. They're not necessarily in chronological order, as they're listed in the English Bible, um, but they do have a point and a purpose. And Habakkuk is unique among these minor prophets. Uh, usually, when you read one of the prophets, you're reading a message from God to a prophet that he is going to give out to his people, Israel, Judah, uh, sometimes a foreign land like Nineveh, and they are strong words. Prophets very rarely show up on your doorstep and say things that you want to hear because usually it's God's hand of discipline reaching out and saying, this is what I find wanting in you as a people, in you as an individual, and I want you to change this. However, when we get to Habakkuk, he does the reverse. This starts off with Habakkuk, much like Job in his book, bringing a kind of a complaint, if you will, to God. And then God answers him. And he calls this an oracle. In verse 1 of Habakkuk 1, we see it says, The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Now, we don't know much about him as a person, but we do know that he lived some 600 years before Christ. He was a contemporary with Jeremiah and Zephaniah, the other prophets. He lived at the end of Israel's national identity time. And in fact, that's what he's going to focus on throughout his book, as most of the prophets do. Identity and inheritance. Identity and inheritance. Who are we as a people? The first four verses of Habakkuk are basically Habakkuk laying out to God more or less a complaint. His question, and I think the best way to look at this is to think of it as a prayer. So if I can read between his lines this morning and get the flavor of what he is saying, it is a question of identity. Who are we? So I'm going to pray right now, and I'm going to take you back 2,600 years ago. Habakkuk is a prophet, possibly a choir master, in the court of the king of Israel, of Judah, in the, in the time of Jehoiakim, and he's greatly distressed. He is supposed to represent God to the people. The king and others come to these prophets and they say, what does God say to us as a nation? What would God say to me? But Habakkuk lived in a very unique time. The king really didn't want to hear from the prophets. In fact, uh, Habakkuk would have been around when Jehoiakim would have been given the words of Jeremiah. And if you ever read Jeremiah, the weeping prophet's words, it's not a fun read. Jeremiah also writes Lamentations, a book of sorrows. And what Habakkuk and Jeremiah are experiencing is that God's faithful people are not going to be rescued out of the fire this time. In every other instance, when there has been a time of national discipline and God has been judging his people, there seems to always be a rescue, right? I mean, Noah got to go to the ark with his faithful family, right? 
Abraham was able to barter with God. God, if there are 100 faithful people in Sodom, will you not save them? Is it not unjust for you to kill them along with all the other sinners? Well, he bargains it down to 10. What about Lot, my nephew, his life, and his family? Will you not take care of them? And God attempts to do so. What about Rahab living in the wall of Jericho? And but for a, a, a scarlet cord being lowered out to identify her, she would have been swept up in the destruction of this city by the Israelites as they took over the new land. But even though she did not know God, she did not grow up in the covenant of faith, God adopted her and brought her in and honored her so much that she becomes part of the lineage of Jesus Christ the Messiah. What about Ruth? Growing up in the land of Moab, one of Israel's historic enemies, and through no design of her own, she ends up marrying a young man from the nation of Israel. And she is allowed to come back in. And God redeems her in that special relationship with the kinsman, with Boaz. Oh my goodness, what favor she has found through the Lord. And God, time after time, delivers his people through the Red Sea when Egypt is trying to attack and Pharaoh's armies are coming after him. And yet we run up right to this day, and Habakkuk is seeing that there are storm clouds on the horizon, figuratively, that God has judgment planned. And Jeremiah, Zephaniah, all of them are realizing this is not a time of rescue. And we see this in this first chapter. So Habakkuk is praying, Father, God, Jehovah, Elohim, Adonai, I am coming to you with pleas because your people, your people are full of sin. And I'm going to list six injustices that I see. There is injustice and there is wrongful suffering. God, they are two sides of one coin. The injustice of the perpetrator upon those who are innocent and the wrong suffering of those who have had been persecuted, those who have been cheated, those who have been swindled those who have been killed by those who are doing the injustice. And Father, there's also violence, and there's, there's continued injustice, and the very fabric of our society's relationships are being torn apart as men kill each other, as children rebel against their parents, as, as husbands and wives separate and divorce, as people disregard your word and your ways. Yes, we are a circumcised covenant people, but we are not living like it. And Father, I have this too, my fifth and sixth one. We have conflict and we have strife. The law courts are full of people suing one another, claiming that they are right. Everyone's a victim. No one has right standing before you. And if that is not enough, God, I'm going to add four more to it. That justice is perverted. Justice is perverted. No one cares. The law is dis disallowed. People do not follow all that has identified us as children of Moses. Father, you called Abraham from the plains of Shinar out of the land of Ur, and you brought us into this new land. You led us under your prophet Moses into this place. Joshua, Father, you took us with Elijah and Elisha, and we have sought our identity of who we are in God, and you established kings like Saul, David, and Solomon. Father, and even though the nation was divided under Rehoboam, you still gave us faithful kings, even in Judah, as we looked at Abijah and Asa and Jehoshaphat and Jehoram. Father, you gave us Amaziah and Uzziah, Hezekiah and the evil Manasseh. Father, Lord, who are we? 
The wicked hem in the righteous. There is no justice in Israel, and yet you stand idly by. You do not hear our prayers. You do not hearken to our calls for justice. What is going on with you, God? Why are you like this? We thought that we could trust you, and yet you've looked away. How can you, a perfect and righteous God, who claims to have adopted us as your people, the people of God, how can this have happened? Father, we watched 120 years ago as you took away more than half of our empire, of our nation, when the Assyrians came down. And the Assyrians did evil things. They, they sowed our fields with salt so nothing could grow there. They ripped open the bellies of our pregnant women. They impaled our men on spikes as road signs on the way to Nineveh. And Father, you thought this was just. And now those of us who are supposed to be a faithful remnant, Father, even though we live through the revival under Josiah, who as a young man found the law through his faithful priest Hilkiah and through the prophetess Holda's words, and we repented as a nation, but Father, all too soon we return back to idolatry, to caring more about the world than about you under Jehoiakim, his son. And Father, you do nothing. You do nothing. Amen. And I think Habakkuk had that prayer over and over and over. Identity. Who are we in God? God said that we were his people, but he's not acting like it. God said we had an inheritance, land. Our land was supposed to be expansive as it was under King David and King Solomon. Seed. Oh, you had promised Abraham that our, our numbers would be more than the stars in the heaven, than the sand on the seashores. And Father, we're reduced to two nations, Judah and Benjamin. What are we to do? What is going on? And then God gives a comforting word. If you're following along, you read down to verse 5. God comes back and says, Habakkuk, I am sorry. I have been absent. I haven't been listening. I haven't taken action. Are you reading that in verse 5? No. God comes roaring back. God comes back with this and says, look among the nations and see. And he introduces to Habakkuk's consciousness that there is another empire. If Assyria was bad and carried away the northern ten tribes, I have the Chaldeans now waiting to come in. And God, once again, is going to use a pagan nation to come in and discipline his people. He says, Behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings, like your Jehoiakim, they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Habakkuk's like, are you for real? Are you serious? 
I call for your mercy. I call for your action to judge your people, to reestablish our identity. And your answer is you're going to bring in the Babylonians? And we know from history that's exactly what God did. A few years later, the Babylonians came in and conquered and took away most of what was left of the national identity of Israel. Israel would no longer exist in their promised land. They would exist sitting by the canals in Babylon. They would exist by being wise men in the king's court of Nebuchadnezzar, of Darius, of Cyrus. Not until they were allowed to return to the land under Nehemiah would they begin to coalesce again as an identity. So here's the idea. God is saying, I don't care what your identity is in me. I am your God. You are my people. But I will not allow my people to live the way that you are living. This is not what it means to be an Israelite. You cannot do this. You cannot have injustice and violence and conflict and strife. The wicked cannot hem in the righteous. When I send a prophet like Jeremiah to the king to convict him of his unrighteousness, he cannot sit there and feed my words into a fire and not go unpunished. That shall not happen. I wish I could be here next week. Habakkuk, in chapter 2, the end of chapter 1, chapter 2, gets into what God's hope is, what God's promise is. But I'm going to cheat a little bit. In Habakkuk 2.4, it says that the righteous shall live by faith. And the only reason I bring this up is because Paul rips that verse out of Habakkuk and he plants it right in his argument on justification in Romans 1. And the reason that this is important is because Paul is setting forth what is new, had never been seen before. You see, in Habakkuk's day, in Jeremiah's day, there had been an open altar, a door, if you would, to heaven. And any time that a prophet wanted to hear from God, he could, <coughs> sometimes unbidden. God would come to them and say, hey, Habakkuk, I have a word for you that I want you to take to these people. The prayers of the priests at worship were heard by God. The sacrifices that were sacrificed upon the altar were smelt by God, were received by him. But soon, very soon after Habakkuk's book is written, that door closes. And for over 400 years, no one hears from God. No one. It's like we are a nation of Israel, but we don't have our identity. And it feels like our very inheritance as being the children of God is in jeopardy. And they don't hear anything until the pages of the New Testament open. And God sent forth his son in the fullness of time. And even then, even though this is a fulfillment of the promise that God had made to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12 and 15, people still didn't see it. They wanted nothing to do with that peasant king, with that son of God, that son of man, and even though Jesus ministered for a few short years, the pinnacle of his ministry was when he's nailed to that cross, right? And he took upon himself the sins of Jehoiakim and Habakkuk and Jeremiah 
and all the kings before. And he took upon himself all the sins of the people of God that were going to come. And then a miracle happens. At least that's how the Apostle Paul thinks of it. Salvation. And this is great news for you and me, for most of us in this room. It's not going to be limited to just his people. The identity of God expands to all peoples of the world, to all Gentiles. And Paul says this is a great mystery in the book of Romans. No one saw this coming. We don't understand this because we as the people of God thought that we had it in the bag. It was just going to be us and no one else. And we had grown in our arrogance. <coughs> Excuse me. And we had decided that we knew God like no one else knew the Father. And therefore, we didn't have to pay attention to the Gentiles. But Paul says that's not the way it's going to be. Back in Romans 1, he says the gospel came first to the Jews and then, then to the Gentiles. Amazing. And then the righteous, doesn't matter where you're from, doesn't matter who you are, we just live by faith. And this church age that we live in, 2,000 years, the Gentile church has been in power, if you want to think of it that way, that God has blessed his church over and over again. But the church is not without problems, is it? You know, one of the things we look at as we read church history is we understand that from time to time, God's church, even this church of Jesus Christ, has gotten way off track. We have forgotten our identity. We have forgotten what we've inherited. I come back to Romans chapter 11. Paul, after he has gone through this long argument as to who we are in Christ, <coughs> that salvation, that justification is through him. He gets to chapter 11, verse 17. And all through this, he is making sort of a, a metaphor <coughs> that Jesus Christ is the vine. He's the root of salvation. He is the one, the Messiah, the blessed one, the hope that Habakkuk had when he wrote his scroll, that someday the Messiah would come, and indeed he did. And the church was born. And Paul says, hey, Gentiles, that's you and me. Before you get too cocky about this whole thing, keep this in mind. If some of the branches of this vine, this root, were broken off, and by the way, that would be Israel. Israel went under discipline, first with the Assyrians, then with the Babylonians. And what has happened to the nation of Israel ever since then? Condemnation, condemnation, condemnation. <coughs> if God would do that to his people, you that's you and I, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of that olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. We exist as a church according to the Lord, thank you, solely for the sake of creating jealousy within the nation of Israel. As they rejected their Messiah as a people in their identity, so we as a church exist, those of us who didn't belong, who didn't necessarily have a call upon God in our identity, 
we're now all of a sudden allowed in. That door that had been closed in silence is now opened, and it's not the Jews standing on the doorstep. It's not Israel. It's you and me. And God's talking to us. The veil was shred, and we have access to him. And Paul says this, and this is the warning point, I think, of the book of Habakkuk. They were broken off, that is, Israel was broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud. This is his imperative, but fear. This is his command, fear. Fear what? Fear God, right? Too often, I think, we in our American evangelical churches think, well, we've got it made, you know. It's just me and God, and it's, I believe in eternal salvation. I can walk forward. I can raise a hand. I can indicate that I've made that step of faith, and I'm all good. And I can go live any way that I want to live. And the Apostle Paul says, no, do not become proud but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, that is Israel, neither will he spare you. Wow. If Habakkuk was writing today, he would have plenty to say to us as a church. He would have words that he would be in complaint about, saying, God, look at this church. This is your identity this people of God. And there are these things that I have against them. And in Habakkuk's days against Israel, what was it? It was, it was injustice. It was violence. It was conflict. It was strife. It was the wicked, him and the righteous. It was that justice has been perverted. The law is no more. And when we look at the New Testament church, including us today, because that is what we've inherited, what would Habakkuk have said? We live in a very dark generation. We live in one of the darkest times, at least in American history, but certainly in world history. And we've covered our light. We're not necessarily that city set upon a hill. What happens, and I think Habakkuk would say this, is that we have lost our flavor. The salt is no longer salty. The stumbling block has been smoothed away. You see, the gospel should cause anger. The gospel should cause people to say, oh, wait a minute, what was that? People respond to that sometimes with absolute hatred. And yet it seems like the church today has none of that characteristic. We are more comfortable with being materialists, right? We're so comfortable with earnings and we're focused on things that make us happy. The church today is, is, is totally materialistic, right? When I look at how Jesus changed the world in his day with 12 men, I wonder what he would say to us today when we look around and there are millions that profess Christ just in this nation alone. And yet the world hasn't changed in the same way, has it? We're in love with the things that give us pleasure. We're in love with the ways that we live our lives. And most of us are so comfortable, we don't want to be uncomfortable for Christ. We like living this way. And I think if Habakkuk was writing today, he would say, Father, look at this the identity of your people. I can't tell the difference between your people and everyone else. The light is dimmed. The salt has gone bad. The stumbling block has been paved away. Father, where is the distinctiveness? Where is the justice? 
Where is the, the heartbreak for the lost world? Where is it? He might also say this. He might also say, I look at the church today, and I think, and I, and I, I look at them, and I think, we don't understand who we are as a people. Very few of us have ever really studied and understood the inheritance, the great inheritance we have in God, the, the, uh, the regular faith, if you will, of the regular fide, as we say in Latin. We have an inheritance of 2,000 years of Christian history, and yet most of us act that Christianity became into existence the moment we accepted Christ. We don't understand who Jesus is. We don't understand who God the Father is. We don't understand how the Trinity works together, and we certainly don't understand what it means to be a saved person. The last few statistics I've read on American church history and American Christianity is that we don't understand the basic doctrines of the faith, and therefore we are subject to any and all who would stand as I am today before you and preach a gospel of untruth, preach a gospel that's full of idolatry, preach a gospel that has nothing to do with the received doctrines of the early church, because we don't know them. We don't know them. Most of our people are content just to know enough about Christ so that we can stamp our ticket, right? We can punch our ticket and we can get to heaven, but don't bother me with all that other stuff. That's just too heady. That's for pastors. That's not what the Word of God says. The Word of God says we should be students of the Word. We should be students of what God has done. We should, better than anyone, understand that it is our job to, under, to spread the understanding of who Jesus is to any that would ask. The problem is, we live just like the rest of the world. The rates of us having babies out of wedlock, the rates of broken families, are just as high as they are in the world. Our salt needs to be recovered. I think Habakkuk would say to us, like he tried to say to his people, let's repent. I pray for revival. I don't know if you do. I pray for revival quite often. And I've become more and more convicted as I pray, as I listen to the Lord, that God is saying, revival always begins with my people, not with those in darkness. Revival very rarely, if you look at church history, begins with those who are lost. It always starts with him. I think of, of Jonathan Edwards standing before his church, not before the town square with all the people who didn't belong, and he talks about how we are like a spider being hovered over a, a candlelight. And we should feel the heat of that. And through such sermons, the Great Awakening began that spread across this nation because his church people fell on their faces and cried out to God for mercy. They repented of those things that were getting in the way of them, of the strife and the conflict between brothers and sisters in Christ, between the lack of unity between his people, between the lack of understanding of what his word said. Revival always begins with God's people. As you come to the communion table today, I challenge you this morning, as I challenge myself, let's pray and ask God, who am I? What is my identity in you, Father? Where am I missing it? Where am I missing it? What, have I, what should I be doing? What should I be believing before you? What else have I allowed to cloud into my mind and my heart that has threatened to blank you out of my life? <coughs> Why am I like this? <laughs> and then just repent of it. It's 
what, 11-something today? Noon today. Start your life over again in Christ. I don't care if you're flying with Christ or if you're low with God. We need us as a body to be together, right? We need in our community groups for there to be unity. We need for us to be focused, laser-focused on who we are in Christ because we have a huge job in front of us. 33,000 kids on that university campus coming up in the September, right? Who's going to reach them? There are, what, 100 and some thousand people in the Iowa City, Coralville area. Who's reaching them? How many lost people are in the world today? If we don't reach them, who's going to reach them? It's not about us. That song, I love it so much, who you are, God, who you are. But I think that last line should be, who are we? Not who am I, but who are we as Christ's church? If you find yourself being tilted towards that brokenness today, I pray that you would spend time with the Lord. Go out of here, out of this church service, and just humble yourself before God. Habakkuk's answer was, Babylon is coming. Paul warns us that if the, the original branches were cut off, let us not be arrogant and think that we won't be cut off that we won't experience discipline, because we can. And I've seen that over and over throughout God's history of his church. But for Iowa City, for the state of Iowa, for the nation of the United States, we need to stand for Christ. We need to be willing to get out of our comfortable lifestyles. We need to be free of the guilt of the sins of our people so that God can use us in a pure way to reach the lost world. That is the message of Habakkuk. And God's judgment came down fierce and hard. Let us claim, let us plead for his forgiveness. Let us be right before him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for your love and your grace. Father, these are hard words in this prophet's writing. He's not messing around. Everything that he knew, his family, his people, his society was flushed away because in your wrath you said, I care more about righteousness. I care more about my people's identity than I do their comfort. Father, make us uncomfortable today. Help us, Father, to be repentant. Help us, Father, to push away those things that cloud our vision of you. And may we this day renew our heart commitment to you. May we be a church that is light. May we be a church that is salty. May we be a church that is a stumbling block. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.